Well, I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, the book of Mark. We will be continuing our study in the book of Mark. It is an opportune time as we have been going through the book of Mark prior to the pandemic that has been going on, and uh, we arrive at Mark chapter 14. And we, in this particular section of the text, are just two days away. This is Wednesday. This is just two days away from the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is an opportune time because this week we will be taking time to remember the life and the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in preparation for Good Friday this coming Friday. So in your Bibles, our scripture reading will come from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. The scriptures read, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word as eternal. We pray, Father, that as our minds are set upon your word, you would remind us of the life, the suffering, and the death of our Lord Jesus. As he goes to the cross, we pray, Father, that you would help us to ever be grateful for he gave his life that we might live. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. This week, I'm sure many of you have been watching the news, those who are on the front lines of the pandemic that has been wreaking havoc upon our country. They risk their lives each day. They go into work and serve those who have contracted COVID-19, and our heartfelt thanks goes to them 
because they are the heroes who have placed themselves really in harm's way to do their best to save others. They work long hours, multiple shifts, end to end, place themselves in life and death situations, many of them contracting COVID-19 themselves. We've watched them on the news, we look up to them, we applaud them, and we give thanks to God for them. And as great and meaningful as their sacrifices, this particular week is a special week in which Christians take time out year after year to remember the even greater work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who lived, who suffered, who died, so that we might have life. Giving years of his life serving others, always under the threat of death, facing opposition at every turn, and this week is known as the Passion Week. The week before Easter is known as the Passion Week, the week of Christ's suffering, because he will be going to the cross. As we've seen in the context, as we've looked back at the chapters in Mark, earlier in the week on Monday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem as tens of thousands had hailed him as the Messiah, shouting, Hosanna. They waved palm branches in celebration. They threw their coats on the ground in submission and acknowledgement of him as Messiah. And that is, by the way, the first time that Jesus accepts the open acknowledgement of his Messiahship by the masses. On Tuesday, the next day, Jesus goes into the temple area. In the court of the Gentiles, he overturns the tables of the money changers. He stops the madness of what is known as the Bazaar of Annas, Annas being the high priest, because there were all of these people who were buying and selling you know, sacrificial animals, exchanging money. There were animals and birds and things like that running all over the place, and he stops all of that, and there he is in the middle of the temple courtyard, in the middle of the territory of his enemies, the religious leaders of the Jews. And you can be sure they were incensed at his opposition to their business because Passover was to them the Christmas time of their business. And he would clash directly with the religious leaders a number of times before they arrest him with trumped up charges just days away. So as soon as he stopped all of the business dealings there in the courtyard of the Gentiles, they began to send their emissaries, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, in wave after wave of questioning him in order to, what, discredit him before the people so that they might get rid of him or that Rome might come and arrest him and they would be rid of Jesus. They send the Pharisees to ask him a question on taxation in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. They send the Sadducees to question him on a subject of resurrection. They send the scribes to ask him about the greatest commandment, and each one of these groups will go head-to-head -head with Jesus, and each one of them will fail miserably. Each time Jesus gives them an answer in a debate, thrashing, a throwdown, such that by the end of their entire argumentation, after sending these emissaries from the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, it says in Matthew, Mark chapter 12, verse 34, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. No one could upend the wisdom of Jesus, the Son of God. No one could discredit him in public because he already knew their intentions, which were to bring him down. And Jesus, speaking to the crowd, 
He warns them against the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees as they had continued to take advantage of the people. Even as he sat down at the end of the day with his disciples and saw a poor widow who had placed her last coins into the offering, how they had taken advantage of her in teaching her that she had to give all. And then in the last chapter, he began to instruct his disciples on the signs of his second coming, knowing that his end was near. And throughout this whole series of events, there are those who genuinely followed Jesus, those who genuinely loved Jesus, and there were those who simply hated him and wanted him dead. And as we come to the end of the life of Jesus, here in chapters 14 and on through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, the writer here, Mark, presents to us in this particular section of text a stark contrast of one who loved the Lord Jesus and one who wanted Jesus dead, who could care less when Jesus no longer offered what he thought he needed. But first, before we look at that contrast, we look at the setting of what this incident was. So in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 14, it says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. That sets us on Wednesday, like I mentioned. He is going to be crucified on Friday. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, the Passover was celebrated during the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, which happens to be in the latter half of March or the beginning of April, just around the time that it is now. And the Passover to the Jews was the greatest event in all of Jewish history. It was the remembrance of the deliverance of Israel out from underneath bondage in Egypt when they were slaves. And God brought about plague after plague upon Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, in order that he might show his power and glory to the world. And the very last plague, this very last plague, God brought this angel of death. And as the angel of death passed over Israel, Israel had been instructed to slay a lamb and to shed the blood on the doorposts and the lentils of their door. And when the angel of death saw that, it would pass over and spare the lives of everyone inside of that home. But when it passed over Egypt and didn't see that blood that was shed, the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, the angel of death slew the firstborn son in all of their households. And through that judgment, God delivered Israel from Egypt. And it is seen, as I mentioned by the Jews, as the greatest event in their history. That is what is being celebrated here. It is a remembrance of the passing over of that angel of death. And it says here, and unleavened bread, the Passover and unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread came immediately after Passover. It lasted for seven days. And it was a remembrance of the, the hastiness by which they had to exit Egypt. Because after the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt, Pharaoh allowed the Israelites to leave. And they had to leave quickly. And it was 
so quick that they didn't have time to allow the bread to rise. And so this unleavened bread was a remembrance of that time, how quickly they did to leave Egypt. And that feast lasted for seven days. And because one of them comes right after the other, in some passages of Scripture, such as Matthew chapter 26, verse 17, and Luke chapter 22, verse 1, those two terms are used interchangeably to refer to the same thing, the Passover and the unleavened bread. The memorial week of feasting was one of three major feasts. On the Jewish calendar, there were three major feasts. One was the Passover and the unleavened bread that the men had to go to. They were to bring, of course, many of them brought their families, but the other two were Pentecost, which happened 50 days later, or Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. And the third major feast on the Jewish calendar was that of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, which was a remembrance of when they were wandering in the wilderness and how they would live in these little booths. And in each of these, the Jews had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, but of all of them, the Feast of the unleavened bread and Passover was the most significant and the largest. Now, the Bible says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. They had always wanted Jesus out of the picture. Jesus was nothing but a huge, huge thorn in their side. And they had wanted to kill him for a long time. But here they wanted a quiet assassination. They were conniving as to how they were going to place a hit on Jesus and get rid of him. They had wanted, of course, to have Rome come in to do their dirty work. That's why they had asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. Hopefully the Romans would come in and arrest him. But, of course, they didn't succeed in all their debates with Jesus. So they had to plan, how were they going to put him to death? How were they going to do it quietly? For they were saying, verse 2, not during the festival and otherwise there might be a riot among the people. Now this is very, very interesting because the Passover was the largest gathering of people. We were talking in Jerusalem of, of upwards of two, two and a half million people based upon the number of sacrificial animals that were given at that time. And Jesus had a good modicum of popularity. Just a couple of days earlier when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, there were tens of thousands of people who had lined the roads saying Hosanna to the son of David to Jesus. And so his popularity was still high, as fickle as that popularity would be. They didn't want, the religious leaders didn't want a riot on their hands. But this in and of itself, this in and of itself, just goes to show that no matter what the circumstances are, God will still do his will. Jesus would still die in two days, despite the fact that the religious leaders said, well, we don't want him to die during the festival. Otherwise, there will be a riot. But yet in God's sovereign plan, Jesus would die in two days, in God's perfect timing, at the hands of the Jewish leaders in conjunction with Rome. Despite the fact that they themselves didn't want that to happen, despite the fact that they thought it was bad timing, God would still do his will. In fact, 
Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So lesson number one, no matter what happens, God's will will still come to pass. No matter what happens, God's will will still come to pass. You know, no matter what circumstances happen in life, no matter what tragedies might come before us, no matter how others might try to manipulate situations, no matter if we ourselves think that it's not a good idea, God's will will still come to pass. That is what we see will happen. Despite the desires of the religious leaders themselves to put Jesus away and not to do it during the festival, it will happen just as God wills. Now, the setting is set. We have come to this picture now that Mark presents to us, a contrasting picture of one who loved Jesus with all of her heart and one who hated Jesus, who wanted nothing more to do with him. And what Mark does in this particular section of text is he does a flashback. This is Wednesday, two days before the Passover, but he does a flashback to Saturday, as John chapter 12 would tell us. This is Saturday in which verses 3 through 9 take place. And here is what happened last Saturday. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, some of Jesus' closest friends, some of Jesus' closest friends were there in Bethany. And Jesus visited Bethany quite often. And there was a man there whose name was Simon. He was known as Simon the leper. And it was quite obvious that Simon the leper, he was known because of his former leprosy, that now he is healed because here he is hosting a dinner. He would not have been able to host this dinner if he were still sick because of, well, they had mosaic laws about social distancing from those who had leprosy. Now, it says here that a woman came, a woman came in, and Mark does not identify her. But the Gospel of John does, and in John chapter 12, verse 3, it does identify this woman as Mary as Mary. Now, which Mary was this? After all, in the New Testament, there are six Marys. Well, you say, well, that's kind of confusing. How do I know which Mary this is? Well, I'm sure if you lived during that time, you would know sort of intuitively which Mary it was because of the context. It's just the same here. Probably the most common name in LHBC would be Nate or Nathan. And so when somebody says Nathan, well, you kind of refer to Nathan of this or whatever family, and you'd know which one it was. Here, Mary, there are six different Marys. This is not Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary, Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, who had a sister named Martha. We know that from the context. And she also had a brother named Lazarus. This is the Mary in the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha was busy with so many things, and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. This is, again, also the Mary who had a brother named Lazarus, whom Jesus, not long before this time, Lazarus had died. And Jesus was coming towards Jerusalem, and he was three days intentionally late, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
Lazarus's sister is named Mary. Mary is this particular woman who comes in. And she has a vial, an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. When commentator writes that it was carved from a variety of fine Egyptian marbles, that's generally how those nice alabaster vials were, I guess, had a long neck with a small opening in which some small drops of liquid could be poured out. This was a a vial that carried a very expensive perfume, and you wouldn't want to have a large spout in which a lot of it would pour out because it was very, very expensive. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 3, it tells us that Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume. Now, a pound, this would have been a Roman pound back in those times, and the amount of perfume that it would be, it would be about 12 ounces in our modern day. 12 ounces, you know, a coffee cup of 12 ounces, that would be quite a bit. A pure nard, meaning that it was undiluted. This was extremely expensive. It was pure. It was not diluted to make it uh, uh, more volume. And it was placed in this very, very ornate jar, a very nice alabaster vial. And what did she do? She broke the vial and poured it over his head. She didn't want to just put a few drops on there. She broke the vial and poured it on his head. And not only that, the book of John tells us that she also poured some on his feet and anointed him with it and let the smell of the perfume fill the house. Lesson number two, not only will God do his will, but second, this woman, having a love for Jesus, was not afraid to give to Jesus her best despite what others may think. She was not afraid to give Jesus her best despite what others may think. She came into this meal where the men were around the table she took the most expensive thing that she had. She served Jesus without, without shame, without embarrassment, because her love for Jesus eclipsed anything else that others might think. Her love for Jesus eclipsed her own, perhaps, potentiality of feeling embarrassed. She was not ashamed. She was not fearful, because her love made all of those other things pale in comparison The question for you and I would be, how much do we love Jesus? We often afraid to tell people that we're Christian in our society around us, or we go to church, or can I tell you about Jesus? You know, Mark chapter 8, verse 38 says, for whoever is ashamed, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. You know what people say today? Mark Buchanan, in his an article written, we're all syncretists now, writes, While reading Wade Clark Roof's new book, Spiritual Marketplace, Baby Boomers and the Remaking of American Religion, the question is, how many of you would call yourself religious? According to Roof's research, a very small percentage of Americans would raise their hand. Not because many don't attend religious services and engage in religious practices on a regular basis, but because 
They're ashamed. Very few Americans consider themselves religious, quote-unquote, anymore. No, as everyone from New Age aficionados to born-again charismatics to mainstream middle American believers are quick to point out, quote, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. This is the new watchword, the shibboleth at the river crossing between generations that marks baby boomers from their forebearers, unquote. Have you heard that before? I'm spiritual. That's not uncommon these days when people describe their own relationship with God. It's sort of a generic term that could mean a whole lot of things. Are you ashamed? She was not afraid to give Jesus her best despite what others may think. Paul encouraged the Romans when he wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Love for Jesus cares more about what God thinks than what others think. But not everyone shared her joy as she brought this perfume on, broke the top, and poured it on the head of Jesus. Not everyone celebrated that. What does it say in verse 4? Some were indignantly remarking. They were angry, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Now all this commotion, this tells us here they were doing it, meaning the entire crowd. But how did this all start? It started with Judas in John chapter 12, verse 4. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box he used to pilfer what was put into it. He started the whole rabbarizing. You know, you sort of have somebody who complains about something and others pile on, yeah, that's right, that's right. Why wasn't this sold? What a waste of money. And they were angry at the waste of money of this woman who had, had this perfume and she poured it on the Lord Jesus. You want to know how expensive that was? It says 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was the amount of money that a person would make, typically a typical day laborer would make in one day. A Roman soldier would make a denarii, one denarii for one day's wage, throw 300 denarii in a calendar year that would be about 10 months' wages. You just think to yourself, maybe how much you might make in an entire year or how much you might make an entire month, multiply that times 10, that's how much this was worth. 10 months of one's annual salary given to Jesus, poured upon him. Now, I'm sure out of Mary's heart, she did it out of her devotion, her love for the Lord Jesus. But can you imagine how she must have felt as they continued to just lay it on her how they continued to shame her in public for what she did, how they berated her with such a condescending tone, and how there's no one who would stand up for what she did when she was doing that which she desired to please. 
the Lord, except for Jesus himself. Verse 6, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached to the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Mary here, this is the Mary that sat at the feet of Jesus to listen to him while Martha was bustling around. Mary, this is the Mary here who came to Jesus in tears when her brother Lazarus had died. This wasn't a proud woman. This wasn't a person that you might picture as immensely gifted, but this woman did what she could with the best that she had, and it pleased God. There's a story about a house servant. A house servant who had two pots, one hung on each end of a pole as he carried these two pots on his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, and this servant would use these pots to go and fetch water for his master. He would walk all the way down to the local stream from the master's house. He would fill up the pots and walk back with water. But while one pot was uncracked, the other was cracked, and the cracked pot, by the time he got back to the master's house, only had half of its amount of water. And for two years, the servant delivered each day only one and a half pots as they picked up water every day. Only one and a half pots would make it back to the master's house. Now, the perfect pot, the pot that looked so beautiful, was certainly very proud of its accomplishments. The poor, cracked pot, however, on the other hand, was ashamed because of its own accomplishments and miserable over accomplishing only half of what it was intended to do. And after two years, the cracked pot personified, of course, perceived its failure, was embarrassed. And finally, one day at the stream, as the servant carried both pots down to the stream, the crackpot decided to speak up. He said, I'm ashamed of myself. I want to apologize to you. The servant said, well, what are you ashamed of? And the pot said, for these past two years, I've been only able to deliver half of my load because of this crack in my side that causes water to leak out all the way to your master's house. Because of my flaws, you never get the full value of all the work you put by putting water in me. And I'm sure, too, as the servant's friends or the master's other servants might have commented, oh... Maybe you should replace that pot. What a beautiful pot you have over there. Works perfectly. Why do you keep using that cracked pot? Well, the servant at the side of the stream said to the cracked pot, when we go back up to the master's house, I want you to notice something all along the way as we go back. 
So he filled up both pots with water, and he walked up the hill back to the master's house. And the cracked pot noticed the beautiful wildflowers on the side of the path. And when they reached the house, the servant said to the pot, did you notice the flowers that only grew on your side of the path, not on the other pot's side? That's because I've always known about your flaw, and I took advantage of it. I planted flower seeds along your side of the path, and every day when we walked back from the stream, you watered those seeds. And for two years, I've been able to pick beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. The moral of the story is that each and every person has flaws. But if we allow the Lord to use us, he will use even our flaws to grace the Father's table. Maybe it's sometimes you feel like that. Someone who wishes they were like somebody else, who wishes you were as gifted as someone else. Mary here obviously wasn't perhaps in the place of the religious leaders. She wasn't known to be especially gifted in certain things. She didn't have a high position in society, but she gave of what she had. Maybe it's like you. Sometimes you feel like you serve and you wish you could do things like others could. Maybe you look at yourself in a way that, well, you feel like a failure. Or time and time again, you wish you could be more like so-and-so who is the perfect, proud pot. Others might even make comments that, oh, maybe you should be replaced. Maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you're not perfect enough. And always pointing out the cracks in your life. To them, they think that your faults, your shortcomings, your best is never good enough. But God knows our weaknesses. God knows where we fall short. And God is not calling us to be like a perfect pot like someone else, but he is calling us to be like Jesus. And he is calling us to be faithful. And he is calling us to be obedient. Continue to water the beautiful flowers that God can use to grace his table because God is not looking for somebody who is going to compare themselves with others and say, I wish I was like that perfect pot. He's looking for a faithful, obedient servant who's willing to give of the best that they had unashamed to Jesus that God might use it for his glory. She did what she did despite the judgment of others who really laid it on her. Why did you waste all of that money? Why did you not sell it and give it to the poor as others criticized her in public and shamed her? But Jesus said what this woman did will be spoken of in memory of her. This is the legacy of the one who loves Jesus. Faithful obedience to the call of God, giving of their best despite what others might say about them or might do for them or to them. We look at now the profile of the antithesis of Mary, and that is those who hated Jesus, those who felt Jesus was in the way of their plans. Verse 10, 
Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began to seek how to betray him at an opportune time. Here we are introduced to perhaps the most hated person in Christendom. One author writes, quote, hated or hatred for Judas was so deep in the years following the closing of the New Testament, that several incredible legends about him evolved. They describe bizarre occurrences, characterizing Judas as ugly, evil, and totally repugnant. One, in the apocryphal Coptic narrative, said that Judas, having betrayed Jesus, was infested with maggots. Consequently, his body became so bloated And on one occasion, he was trying to ride on a cart through a gate. Being too large to fit through it, he hit the gate. His body exploded and maggots spewed all over the wall. Now, obviously, that story is not true, but it just shows the high level of contempt for Judas in the early centuries, unquote. Judas Iscariot is probably the most infamous person in the Bible. He is not only not the only one that was named Judas. There was another disciple named Judas, but every time that other disciple's name was Judas, it would always have a caveat, Judas, the son of James, or Judas, parenthesis, not Iscariot, to set him apart from the Judas Iscariot that we so despise. Judas, the son of James, was also known as Labaius or Thaddeus. That's how you might find him in all of the lists of his name. But the meaning of the name Judas was not terrible in of itself. Judas means Jehovah leads. Now his surname, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot comes from a compound word, ish is the Hebrew word meaning man. Iscariot comes perhaps from the uh, name of the town from which he was from, Kerioth, Hezron, also noted in Joshua chapter 15, verse 25, it was a humble town south of Judea, Iscariot, it would be mean then, Judas, the man from Kerioth, and if he was from there, which was believed that he was, he would have been the only one of the 12 disciples who was not from Galilee. You have the region of Judea, Then you have Samaria, and you have Galilee up north. All the other 11 would be from Galilee, and Judas Iscariot would have been from south south of Judea, far from the others, where the others, all the other 11, perhaps some were friends, some were brothers, some were co-workers, even though they had different philosophical leanings and beliefs and things like that, at least they could all say that they were Galileans, and maybe they'd cross paths with one another, but here... This man, Judas Iscariot, was one who was outside of that group. But perhaps that anonymity worked in his favor. The others perhaps didn't know much about his background. When Jesus chose him, well, he was simply allowed to hang around them. And as he did, he lived a life of utter hypocrisy And he arose in a position of prominence. He arose in a position of power to be their treasure, taking care of the money, as we see here. And from a worldly perspective, when you look at the life of Jesus, if you didn't know who he was, well, he might be even deemed as a person who was very successful. He positioned himself in a powerful place. He maneuvered himself into position politically. 
He was in a very influential position of finances. He had goals. He had plans. And he connived with the religious leaders, implemented those plans, accomplished his goals, and the execution of Jesus took place. I mean, if you wanted somebody who was going to be uh, an individual who could maneuver himself around people and get what he wanted from a world's perspective, he might have been seen as a success, especially when compared to some of the other disciples. But after his betrayal of Christ, Judas Iscariot became a despised individual. In fact, in every single list, in every single list of the 12 disciples, his name occurs last in the list, with the exception of the one in Acts chapter 1, which he is not even named among the disciples. Not only is he last in every list that there is a mention of him, there's sometimes a notation that he was a traitor, that he was a traitor. He is an example of what not to be. He was a man with great privilege, having been with Christ for three years. He was a man of great influence, but because of his sinful desire for money and what the world had to offer, that power, that prestige, his concern for what he wanted when he realized Jesus was not going to come through with establishing his own kingdom here on earth at this time, he decided he was going to take his money and run. After all, If Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom, you could imagine he would be like the secretary of the treasury. And for one who would pilfer all the money, well, that would be a very lucrative position to be in. But no, Jesus had been talking about how he was going to die, and he knew that his own plans and his own vision of how this was all going to turn out, well, he wasn't going to be left with the short end of the stick. So he sold out the Savior for 30 pieces of silver the price of a slave. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This is what happens many times when God doesn't deliver on what they believe God should give to them. When there is a sense of entitlement, they decide they're going to pave their own way. And rather than humbly submitting to the will of God, rather than bowing to God in worship, rather than not sinning when everything is taken away, just as Job had everything taken away, rather than bowing, they choose their own path, they go their own way, which leads to their own suffering and destruction. For us in our time, there are many who have lost everything. Many have lost their lives. For others, they've lost their businesses. For others, they've lost their livelihood. And tension and stress and fear are compounded and surround them. The question is, when our expectations aren't met, how will we respond? Will we respond in loving devotion like Mary despite what was going to happen? She anointed him. And I think she knew he was going to go to the cross. Jesus said so himself. She's anointed him for his burial. And yet she gave him her very best, despite what others might have thought. Despite the scorn, despite the criticism, despite whatever it was, she did what she could in obedience and faithfulness. Judas took his money and ran 
Mary sacrificed and brought glory to God because of her love for Jesus. And Judas, on the other hand, selfishly thought of himself first. One is known for her love, for her deeds, for all of eternity, while the other is known for his selfishness and greed, also for all of eternity. And the question for you and I is, if you were to die today, what would history remind others of you? If a biography was written of your life, what would it say? Chapter 1, this is what so-and-so did with their life. Chapter 2, this is what they did when they were at this stage in life. Chapter 3, this is what they did in this stage of their life. What would it say about you and your life? What would it say about how you used your time, how you used your resources, what you invested your life in? Would it say you were not ashamed to give to Jesus your very best despite what others may think? Despite the fact that you might have seen flaws within yourself as a crackpot would be, you gave of yourself and watered those flowers so that it could grace the master's table? Or would it say you loved yourself first You lived for yourself. You loved what the world had to offer. It's easy to think that we would never be like Jesus. But if we're to be honest with ourselves, who would you be more like? Mary or Judas? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have a sobering reminder as you have given us this stark contrast of characters in the text of Mark. One who loved your son with all of her heart, served him, gave of him her best, seeing the power of resurrection, prepared your son for burial. And the other who chose his own path, who chose to go his own way simply because his own expectations were not met. And I pray, Father, for the faith of those who are listening today, that in the midst of all of the suffering and the losses that we face, in the midst of dashed dreams, of retirement funds that have disappeared, of plans for the future, of hopes that have been dashed. I pray, Father, may our resolve be to cling to you, to trust in heavenly treasure, to place our faith and trust in that which will last for eternity, in you, your Son, and your Word. And Father, may our treasure be found in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. Grant to us your peace and help us, Father, to look to you, especially during these distressing times. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.